Welcome to the Candida Chronicles with our host, Michael Biamonte, Certified Clinical Nutritionist. In this podcast, Michael will answer your questions and reveal the shocking truth that the cause of most chronic ailments is not what you've been told. The source is Candida, a yeast overgrowth which, when it becomes systemic, can cause all sorts of seemingly unrelated ailments such as chronic fatigue syndrome and even weight gain. For more information on how Michael can help you, please visit healthtruth.com, that's health-truth.com, or phone his office at 212-587-2330. And now, without further ado, Michael Biamonte. Well, everyone, welcome to that's a ra- edition of the Candida Chronicles, which is going to be covering the diet today. The dreaded Candida diet will take up the next hour of our time in discussing, and hopefully we're going to get into some detail on it. We are going to be covering many different aspects of the Candida diet today. And for those of you who have questions... During this podcast, you may email your questions in, and we will take them up live on the air. Send them to drb at health-truth.com. That is drb at health-truth.com. And let's proceed with the Candida Diet podcast. So the first concept that we're going to take up is actually the concept of the diet, why the diet is, is done, why it's necessary. Because you're apt to find medical doctors out there who are novices in treating candida who are going to tell you virtually nothing about diet and just prescribe medications. These are amateurs at treating this condition because they're not paying attention to the aspects of the diet that are necessary. The reason why the candida diet is necessary is because starches and sugars feed this microorganism. Candida thrives on these foods, and it grows when it consumes them. The concept behind the candida diet is not to feed it anything that it likes so that it becomes weaker, and you're certainly not feeding it and making it grow while you're trying to kill it. That's the basis of why we do the diet. As I said again, candida feeds on starches and sugars. It even has learned over the years to thrive on artificial sweeteners. I don't have a reference for that. I can tell you I've seen that in my own practice. That's, that's from an empirical standpoint that we see it thrives on it in uh, these artificial sweeteners. Also on alcohol sugars, with the exception probably of xylitol, because xylitol tends to feed friendly bacteria at a very quick, quick rate. And I don't have any empirical... Uh, observation or any medical or scientific reference that shows xylitol feeds candida. So first off, the reason why we follow the diet is because we do not want to feed the candida and make it worse. We want to restrict its growth and control its growth by putting ourselves on a diet which does not feed the candida in any way. There is always some controversy as to which diet is best for candida. If you go online and you look over different websites, you'll find hundreds of different versions of the candida diet. The reason why you'll find different versions is because these individual diets appearing on these websites are usually the diet that the person who owns the website or promotes the website found worked for him. So this is not based on your own individuality. This is based on the writer's experience. And the basis of the the diet is a low-carbohydrate, low-sugar diet. So any version that you find of the candida diet, which is low-carb and low-sugar, is apt to be valid. To argue over which one is more valid is ridiculous because, as I said, none of these diets are typically based on individual needs they're based on the 
person's own individual experience of what he would tolerate, he or she could tolerate. So they put the diet together based on their own experience. Um, at the Biamonte Center, we can uh, go more into putting together the diet from a more individual standpoint. We'll cover that a little later. But that's not what's being done on the web when you read about different diets. The basis of all candida diets is that it's low carb and low sugar. This then avoids the two principal foods that candida feeds on. Gluten becomes the next item in this ring. Candida has been definitely shown to feed on gluten. That's the only known protein that candida tends to feed on or that candida tends to be very reactive to or with. So most candida diets you'll find are going to be gluten-free. You'll also find that candida diets are typically yeast-free because the body of the candida sufferer typically has yeast allergies and they'll react to yeast foods, even though the yeast food is not a pathogenic strain of yeast like candida albicans is. Dairy tends to be the next item that there'll be a problem with, and this will be because dairy contains lactose, and lactose feeds yeast. So that's the ba this now is the basic outline of the diet. We have a diet which is, tends to be low in sugar, low in carbs, the maximum amount of carbs that we would suggest for one day on the candida diet is 150 grams. Some people have gone as low as 40 grams. Um, the the Biamonte Center's um, strict candida diet, uh, which was sometimes we've nicknamed the caveman diet, does go down that low. That diet is actually a replica of the Atkins stage 4 diet, which is kind of like an Atkins maintenance diet. Uh, it's not necessary to go into ketosis when you're on the candida diet, which some people do. This is not necessary. The diet is going to be found to be gluten-free, yeast-free, and dairy-free for the most part. And as I said, the total amount of carbs will range between 40 to 150 grams. That's your typical candida diet. Now, in looking at the diet a little bit further, there are some new ideas that we have, which are very interesting. First is as regards vegetables and understanding whether or not your vegetables may be a source of thallium. If you, if you caught the podcast of two weeks ago, uh, the name of the podcast was uh, Kale Toxicity. We have been finding, we, we found another one just this week, another patient this week who is thallium toxic. And this is something that's unfortunately coming up. Um, on, in the mainstream internet, this is being poo-pooed by people. However, I can tell you that my practice has already uncovered three patients who are thallium toxic and it very, very easily could be from eating vegetables which are contaminated with thallium. So there's a consideration on the candida diet about this. Um, unfortunately, we don't have a method yet of testing for this. This is something we're going to be looking into. We're contacting some of the companies that do hair and urine mineral analysis to see if they're able to test vegetable sources for patients to see if their vegetables are high in thallium. That would be quite a breakthrough if that was possible. Because this way, if we were to catch that the person is thallium toxic, we can have that person send a sample of their vegetables to the lab to see if the source is the vegetable. That would be a big uh, head step in the treatment because you certainly don't want your patients ingesting thallium in high amounts from their vegetables if you're trying to treat them for anything at all, but particularly candida. Another issue that is very important to look at is your blood type. Um, we reference when we talk about blood type the books written by Dr. Peter Diadamo. And we have found as a general rule that type O's do, well, let's, let's say type O's are more limited by the diet and type O's are more reactive to the diet than type A's. Now, what I mean by this is a type O cannot have the leeway that a type A may on the candida diet. 
um, type O's who have candida, it's necessary for them to follow the diet more strictly because inherently they do not do as well with carbohydrates as, as type A's. This is an empirical observation that I've made, which is so true that it led me to, to um, compose a diet which is used on phase two part B, which is our probiotic stage, that's specifically for type A's. Uh, type A's have this advantage when they get to that stage of the program that they're able to consume certain foods in higher, much higher amounts than type O's, which help propagate friendly bacteria's growth. These foods actually feed the friendly bacteria and make them grow. Now, with type O's, if you put them on those foods, if they eat too much, those foods, because they have a higher sugar and carbohydrate content, could potentially cause a candida relapse. And this is where the type A has an advantage. Um, type B's and, and AB's, I don't have any data on that shows anything being that significant. But when it comes to blood types, we're looking at type O and type A's, there's most definitely a, a difference in the, the way they react to the diet. Um, the type A can also be more sensitive to the die-off that they have on the program, just in general more so than the type O. If someone was to ask me, well, who's better off? Who's going to get well faster? I would say it isn't a point of faster. It's just a point of different. One versus the other is not so um, ahead of, of, of each other. It's just differences, except with the point of the flora diet I mentioned on phase two, part B, where we do have a special diet for the type A. Now, principally, most people are concerned with the candida diet when they go out to eat. Uh, and what I have found is that there are a couple of, a couple of issues with this that can be very helpful. Um, you can be, do better off following the diet when you try to eat different ethnic foods. And one of the things that this helps relieve is the boredom that the diet brings, that we hear people talk about all the time. Um, most people don't necessarily use a lot of spices and herbs and different types of seasonings that are in ethnic foods. And if a person was to do so, uh, they would open up probably a whole new culinary world for themselves, which would make the candida diet, or any diet for that matter, a lot less difficult and a lot more interesting and more satisfying and therefore easier to follow. So one of the first things we recommend when a person's having problems following the diet is we recommend that they look into eating a bit more ethnic food. Um, you, there, any food that you look at from an ethnic standpoint can be done from a low-carb version. I'll give you examples of this right now. Uh, an Indian food. Indian food, you have the tandoori, which is essentially the barbecued meats that are barbecued in the clay oven that's called the tandoor. These are extremely low carb. Those can be accompanied by vegetables that are also barbecued in the tandoor, or it can be just accompanied by vegetable curries. You don't necessarily need to eat any bread or any rice with this meal, and it's, uh, it will cover all the bases. In Mexican cuisine, you have fajitas. Now, you don't necessarily need to eat the tortillas or any of those things that come with it, but the accompaniments, uh, being like guacamole and onions and different things like this, to the fajitas, which is basically a grilled meat or chicken or shrimp or some type of fish, or would be totally acceptable on the candida diet. So from this example, these two that I've just given you, you then can look into any ethnic and you can look at what are the different styles that they braise, grill, or barbecue meats. And then you can look for side dishes or accompaniments which are low in carb. And here you've opened up the, the door to a whole new world of eating as opposed to what you're probably standardly used to. Just generally speaking though, using herbs, spices, and one seasonings and whatnot is going to give a lot more interest to the diet and it will tend to make it less boring. Where we have a person who has difficulty following the diet, not because he's bored, but because he has extreme sugar cravings, the first things that we would suspect is they're not consuming enough protein or enough fat. 
Um, sugar cravings have been used for years as an indicator by a lot of personal trainers that their clients are not consuming enough oil or fat in their diet. And certainly the same thing would be true of protein. Another thing that you'd want to consider when you're doing the candida diet is to eat small meals frequently, like most personal trainers recommend, because that's better to help control your blood sugar. Eating six small meals per day on the candida diet is superior to eating one or two meals, which is what many people might be doing. This helps control your blood sugar to a great degree, so it will lessen cravings. Uh, other things that would help lessen cravings is the use of digestive enzymes while you're on the candida diet, particularly hydrochloric acid. Many type A's, blood type A's, are low in hydrochloric acid. They have difficulty digesting their protein. And uh, interestingly enough, we find in the candida business, the type O's, who normally have strong acid output, will be very uh, acid deficient because of the candida condition that they're carrying with them. So the use of HCL for these people and any type of digestive enzyme is always going to help because you're going to ensure that your food is broken down and digested better. You'll get, you'll get more of the nutrition from the food, therefore have less cravings. And if you accompany that by eating six small meals a day, you're in much better shape. Where a lot of people also uh, go wrong on the candida diet is by not eating breakfast or by not eating a substantial enough breakfast. This is disastrous because it then sets you up for sugar cravings for the rest of the day, which is the last thing you need doing the candida diet. So when you are doing the diet, it's really important that you eat a breakfast which is reasonably high in fat and protein in order to sustain your metabolism for the rest of the day so that you don't end up with a lot of sugar cravings. So by now, I'm sure there are people out there who are saying, well, that's all great, but what do you eat? What are we supposed to eat? Okay, well, you have basic categories um, that you'll see in the Biamonte uh, Candida diet that most of our patients get. The, it's the first diet we give everyone. It's broken down into categories. The first category is protein. In Latin, the word protein means to come first. Uh, back in those days, they understood that the, that protein was so essential to the repair of of tissues and cells and, and whatnot in the body that it was a first priority. So that's usually the first thing we look at, and that's usually why in a, in a meal consumed by meat eaters, the entree is always considered whatever the animal protein would be in the meal. So um, in a candida diet, you can certainly eat freely of any animal protein. That includes beef, it includes lamb, it includes pork, it includes all poultry, whether it's turkey, chicken, duck, whatever. It includes all fish, fish with scales, fish with shells. These are all considered acceptable sources of protein. There can be an issue with fish containing mercury. Um, because candida patients tend to be susceptible to mercury, we would always advise the person to first know his mercury levels before he gets into eating a lot of fish which might be high in mercury. The fish which tend to be highest in mercury are swordfish and, and tuna, uh, but any large fish has the potential to absorb a lot of mercury. So that's something to be considered. So that's the protein area. And of course, what, the question that always will come up is when you then start to prepare the food, there's the concern of what you're using to prepare. If it's a marinade of some type, if it's some type of rub. Basically, I have not seen any problem with any of these things unless you're particularly allergic to that marinade or rub or there's something in there that you're allergic to. But as far as how the rubs or marinades affect candida, they don't. There's not enough sugar contained in any marinade or rub to influence your candida growth. So that's not a problem. Now, now there could be a, the exception to the rule could be something like Saucy Susan or something which is really sweet and could be gobbed on the, the, uh, the meat. That's a different story. But in most cases, the typical marinade or, or rub that you use is not going to be a problem at all. 
People often ask if bacon is acceptable, and bacon is totally acceptable on the candida diet because it is a protein and fat. It is not a carbohydrate or a sugar. And this opens up a question, which I want to put out there, is that when people are thinking of what foods are acceptable on the diet, what is the calculation or what is the equation that you can use to figure this out? Well, when you're looking at a food and thinking to yourself, can I eat this on the candida diet? Your first question should be, is this food high in sugar or starch? If the answer is yes, the odds are you should not be eating it. If the answer is no, the odds are it's fine. If you don't know whether or not this food happens to be high in sugar or starch, the next thing you should do, as um, Casey Stengel would say, would be to look it up. Get a book which counts carbs and sugars and consult the book to see whether or not this particular food is high in starch or sugar. There will get, that will give you your answer right then and there and you'll know whether or not this food is acceptable on the diet. In the next category, which would be vegetables, most all vegetables are acceptable on the candida diet with the exception of some of the root vegetables which are really high in starch or potentially sugar. Examples of those vegetables could be white potato, could be beets, could be carrot. Now, in small amounts, these things are okay. In large amounts, they could be too high in starch or sugar and could put you too high up in your daily carb content for the day. Um, grains, another area to be careful with, because grains are not only high in starch, but they're also potentially high in gluten which could make them a double whammy for the candida diet. Grains generally are a bad idea unless you're eating ones that specifically you know you're not allergic to, you know don't have gluten, and you know you've, re you've done well with in the past. But typically, um, a grain which tends to be not really problematic for most candida patients is millet. Not the most popular grain in the world, but on the other hand, Generally speaking, it's, it's not considered reactive to candida patients. Um, quinoa is another popular uh, substance sold in the health food store as a grain. Quinoa is actually a seed, and as a seed, it does not contain gluten, and it generally is tolerated pretty well by candida patients. Rye is a contradiction in, its, in itself, in a, in a way, because rye does contain gluten, However, rye is one of the least allergic grains. For some reason throughout history, people have not developed allergies to rye. So rye could be acceptable. You have to see how you tolerate it, how your candida symptoms do. But generally, that could be the exception to the rule. Of course, you want to avoid wheat. Wheat is the worst grain that a person with candida could consume because it's so high in gluten. Rice tends to be generally well-received. Um, People will, will ask the difference between white and brown rice. Um, in actuality, white rice is less allergic because white rice doesn't contain the protein coating that brown rice has. It doesn't necessarily mean it's better, but the odds are is if you're going to be analyzing people and their tendencies to be allergic to one food versus the next you'll probably find they're going to be least allergic to white rice as opposed to brown. But just in general speaking, brown rice tends to be, or just rice in general, tends to be very low allergy. So it generally doesn't represent a problem. Now, people will say very often, well, I don't know what is there to eat. I don't know what to eat. Well, um, so far through this podcast, we've gone through a whole series of proteins that one can eat. We've talked about the few things which are generally not eaten, which are the, these grains and the handful of vegetables that I mentioned. I just want to read off a list. This comes from one of the Biamonte-centered diets. I want to read off a list of the things you can eat because all those people out there who have as a mantra, I don't know what to eat, there's nothing to eat, I want you to open up your awareness for a second to the concept of these other foods. Some of them you may never have eaten in your life, others you may have. Let's take a look and I want you to keep in mind that this is an unlimited each day list 
that we're first going to look at. So all the foods from this list that I'm going to cover right now are considered, you can consume an unlimited amount, amount of these foods on the Candida diet. So we start with beet greens, dandelion greens, Boston lettuce, romaine lettuce, iceberg lettuce, chicory, arugula, watercress, kale with a question mark. We go back to the podcast about the potential kale toxicity. Escarole, Swiss chard, collards, spinach, celery, cauliflower, broccoli, all cabbages, bok choy, fennel, asparagus, all sprouts, cucumber, radish, eggplant, green beans, turnips, artichoke, endive, radicchio, rhubarb, zucchini, garlic, all peppers, broccoli rabe, and also tomatoes that are canned have a low sugar content and could be used. Now that's quite a list of vegetables potentially that you could have. Here, the next list I'm going to give you are limited qual- uh, quantities. Here we try to limit the servings to two from, uh, from this group per day. And we have scallions, which would be a quarter cup serving. Uh, serving. Shallots, also a quarter cup. Leeks, a quarter cup. Onions, a quarter cup. Carrots, a half to one stick per serving. One tomato, one yam. And with the yam, we would encourage two to three times per week. Summer squash, half a cup, also two to three times per week. Acorn squash, the same, half a cup, two to three times per week. Spaghetti squash, half a cup, two to three times per week. Peas, half a cup, two to three times per week. All of these foods should be taken in moderation because these do have higher carbohydrate levels and can be a bit of a problem. Uh, Next group would be beans and beans, peas, legumes, this area, which also include lentils, um, chickpeas, kidney beans, lentils, soybeans, black-eyed peas. All of these foods could be taken somewhere a quarter to perhaps a half a cup per day, providing that the group above that we just went over that are in limited qualities uh, aren't being used perhaps in that same day. So you could potentially rotate them. Going back to revisit some of the grains we talked about before, um, rice, wild rice, brown rice, white rice, all could be used. We would approximate a third of a cup. We have a millet, buckwheat, amaranth, and uh, quinoa. All of those products could be used somewhere around a third of a cup per day. And all of them are reasonably low in carbohydrate, relatively nutrient-dense, but they're not things you could be eating in unlimited amounts. You must have the specified amount, again, because we don't want your carbohydrate level going too high. We have nuts and seeds also on the diet. Now, with nuts and seeds, there, there are only really two nuts which people have been found to be very reactive to on the candida diet, and those are peanuts, predominantly peanuts, because peanuts contain aflatoxin B. The aflatoxin B is something naturally occurring in peanuts. It's essentially a mold, and it could cause bad allergic reactions in the candida person. Empirically, it's been found that people with candida don't do well with cashews. Um, I've found this to a degree. I've seen a lot of people on the candida program become constipated more from cashews than any other nut. So there we we would uh, say that this is a problem. When it comes to oil, virtually any oil could be used on the candida diet. The ones that we tend to encourage more would be olive oil, um, coconut oil, macadamia nut oil, and walnut oil because they all have anti-candida properties. Uh, When it comes to the dairy category, we spoke earlier of lactose. Well, what doesn't have lactose is butter and heavy cream. As a matter of fact, they have very small amounts of lactose. So they can be acceptable on the candida diet to a certain degree. Um, Also, goat and sheep cheeses, such as Pecorino, Romano, and feta, etc., 
can be consumed because their um, rate of allergy would be very low. And that's something that is a consideration in a candida patient is their dairy allergy, even if we're not considering a lactose problem. Um, Rigotta cheese also can be used because it's low lactose. These are to be used in limited quantities. And they're to be removed from your diet if you notice any bad reactions to them, of course. But they can be tried and can be used. And going, if we visit again the area of the proteins, there is also another category that we really didn't even touch on, and that's game. There's so much wild game available if you go to health food stores or stores that sell game that that could really add to interest in the diet. There is bison, for instance. Um, there's deer. You know, there's many types of game that you can eat if you haven't tried them before, which could be interesting. We got many questions about fruits. Uh, generally speaking, the berry family, the entire family of berries is totally acceptable on the candida diet. And I found people could take somewhere between probably a half a cup to a cup of berries per day. That includes strawberries, blackberries, blueberries, raspberries, boysenberries, etc. Generally, all the berries are very low in carbs, and you can take them without having a lot of reactions. It's rare that we have a patient who has to limit their berries because the berries have so much sugar or cause a reaction. Cherries while not in the berry family, can be consumed. We have found there the type of sugar that's in cherries to be pretty well tolerated. And also Granny Smith apples probably are the hallmark fruit of the candida diet. Just about every candida diet I've ever seen encourages to have uh, some Granny Smith apples. Granny Smith apples are the lowest in sugar. They're the highest in pectin, which make them really good for detoxifying the intestinal tract. Lemons, limes, and grapefruits also tend to be low in sugar. The cons one consideration with lemon, lime, and grapefruit is that the sugars that are in there tend to ferment. So theoretically, it's possible that if you consumed the, the juice or the fruit of a lemon, lime, or grapefruit that was too old, it may start to ferment and you may get allergic reactions to it. But generally speaking, this is not something that we would consider is typically going to happen. Uh, the next thing in your cooking that can be used are different extracts. Uh, examples of almond, lemon, orange, vanilla. These extracts are usually in a tiny bit of alcohol. They're generally unsweetened, and they can be added to different foods and different uh, natural desserts that you could make from some of these berries and some of the cheese or the dairy sources. Like, for instance, if you look in the... Um, some of the uh, more popular diet books, you'll see that they're making desserts nowadays using some ricotta cheese. Um, the ricotta with some of these extracts and the berries can actually make an interesting dessert which can be very low in carb and not set off reactions. It's just a matter of you using some finesse and assembling these ingredients. Also, things that will come up, interesting, fall into the miscellaneous category, people will ask all the time, are olives. Now, olives are, like, let's, let's run through our drill. Are olives high in carbohydrates or sugars? The answer is no. So they're completely acceptable on the candida diet. Capers, same, same thing, same question. Here's something which is, it can be added to your food and give it some zing and spice, and it's not high in sugar, not high in carbohydrates. All types of peppers can be used. All herbs, whether they're dry or fresh, can be used. Coleman's powdered mustard could be used. Horseradish. These are all things that fall into the category, I guess, of condiments, but they're all low in starch and sugar and certainly can be added to your diet and used in your cooking. Even unsweetened cocoa powder. Uh, there's a Mexican dish, which is called mole poblano, which essentially is a, is a Mexican chicken, which is cooked in a cocoa powder mixture. So it comes up almost like a chocolate sauce. 
that could be acceptable if you're in control of how much sugar or how much sweetener is being put in there. But that would certainly be something a person on the Candida diet would never consider they'd be eating would be a chicken cooked in a, in a chocolate sauce. But however, that's acceptable. Except dark, dark chocolate, as a matter of fact, when you're looking at a percentage of cocoa that's 70% or higher can be included in your diet. We've seen people eat as much as four ounces per day and have no effect at all, no ill effect at all from doing that. One thing on the dark chocolate that we just want to look at for a second, though, is the nickel content of the chocolate. And this also depends on where you are in the world. The chocolate that you're getting could have different degrees of nickel. Um, so that's something to consider. You want to know, like we drew the example with the fish. In eating fish, you'd want to know what your mercury levels are ahead of time. The caveat in eating chocolate is you would want to know what your nickel levels are. If you have high levels of nickel, um, chocolate should be avoided unless you know for a fact that the area of the world that you're getting the chocolate from does not ha have necessarily high levels of nickel. Um, this same thing goes back to our toxic kale that we discussed in last week's podcast and the thallium that the kale could contain. Sweeteners are always a question that come up. Uh, generally speaking, we have found that xylitol, truvia, and stevia are sweeteners that people with candida can use in small amounts. And if you use them in reasonable amounts, the candida is generally not affected. Then we'll get the question of what I can drink, what the beverages would be. Well, the first beverage of choice for anyone is going to be water. <laughs> um, so generally speaking, when you're on the candida diet, you want to try to drink half your body weight converted to ounces. So if someone weighed 200 pounds, their goal is 100 ounces of water. And I always recommend that people drink water every 30 minutes. Drinking large amounts of water in one sitting guarantee one thing, is that you'll be in the bathroom and you'll be urinating, and that's not what we want. If you sip the water and drink the water slowly, you're going to remain better hydrated. Generally speaking, all herbal teas can be consumed on the candida diet. You can also ice them and sweeten them a bit using the sweeteners we mentioned. Coffee, this is a big question we get. Coffee is okay on the diet, providing you're not drinking a dr dramatic amount. The oils in coffee can potentially kill friendly bacteria, so best to limit yourself to one cup a day. It's totally fine. One cup a day is safe on the candida diet unless you have a particular allergy to coffee. English teas, green teas are fine. Sparkling drinks, club soda, for instance, mineral and sparkling water, flavored seltzers, club soda, all are fine. In the supermarket, you can occasionally find sparkling waters, which are naturally flavored, and they, they're an excellent addition to your candida diet because there's going to be no calories, and you're drinking something which has flavor and interest. So those are totally fine. Diluted sweetened cranberry juice is a trick. Cranberry juice tends to be not that high in sugar, uh, but if we dilute it with water and if it's already unsweetened, you, ha you have something to drink which is tasty and has a very low sugar content. There are various hydration drinks that you find in the health food stores. Um, for instance, coconut, there, many of them are coconut water. There's one called Blue Diamond. Uh, this is fine as long as it's unsweetened. There's an almond milk, which you'll find called Almond Breeze. There is help mil hemp milk you can find in the health food store. All of these are totally acceptable, provided that they're unsweetened. So these are many of the food choices you have on the Candida diet. And these are many concepts I've given you on how you can prepare the foods or what you can expect to have in the preparation. Now, as far as the avoids go, the avoids are pretty simple. Uh, first avoid that we have, which is a big one for many people, is sodas. Sugar-sweetened sodas can have up to 16 teaspoons of sugar per serving. Now, very rarely would anybody in their right mind ever think of taking 16 teaspoons of sugar and then consuming that, but 
Believe it or not, when you start drinking soda, that's the area of sugar you're getting into. So sweetened sodas are a complete no-no. And, and we don't necessarily go along with the sodas being artificially sweetened because artificial sweeteners have their own dangers from other aspects. Of course, alcohol can't be consumed on the diet uh, with any regularity. The safest alcohol to consume on the Candida diet, though, is a white distilled alcohol. Gin arguably could be the best alcohol to consume because gin, gin in itself has some antifungal properties. It's probably the only alcoholic drink which is antifungal. Vodka is less damaging than other alcohols would be. The worst alcohol you can consume on the Candida diet, of course, is beer because beer is high in maltose and maltose feeds yeast like crazy. Different yeast-containing products like bread, cookies, muffins, all these things are, of course, not eaten on the Candida diet. Many of the dairy products that we talked about before, uh, different types of cheese, milk, whatnot, the only exceptions would be the ones we spoke of earlier, as I was just saying, that you could have. Those are the rare exceptions, but generally we want to avoid dairy. Uh, wheat, barley, gluten-containing grains, even oats should be avoided because while oats don't have gluten themselves, they do have a gluten-like substance which people have been seen to react to. Fermented foods such as vinegar, yogurt, things of this nature, uh, it's possible a person could react allergically to because they're fermented. So those need to be considered when you're consuming mushrooms and any edible fungus. Uh, normally could be a, are quite healthy things and they boost your immune system, but people with candida have a problem with their immune system identifying any fungus as, with the candida. So it's possible that the person may react badly to the mushrooms. A lot of these areas that I'm getting into now, where I'm giving you a caveat, are areas that you'll find all the differences between one candida diet and the other. There will be candida diets where they'll encourage you to eat mushrooms because of the immune-stimulating properties, but yet you're going to find someone else who's written a candida diet who's going to discourage you from eating mushrooms because he himself had bad allergic reactions to the mushrooms. So you have to differentiate this and understand this is an individual question. Dried fruits definitely would not be consumed on the candida diet because they would be just way too high in sugar. That would pretty much blow your diet. Then one of the last aspects to look at, which is really interesting, would be genetically modified foods. Uh, we can talk about this for another entire podcast, but genetically modified foods aren't good for anybody. Uh, regardless of what some of our presidential candidates and our present administration thinks, GMO foods have been found to be very, very bad for you. GMO foods have been banned throughout Europe. Interestingly enough, the company which is most responsible for GMO foods, Monsanto, doesn't serve GMO foods in their own cafeteria where their workers eat. Now, I would encourage people to avoid GMO foods whenever possible because regardless of what your medical condition is or what your diet is or what your health program is, you're going to do far better if you avoid GMO foods. And this would totally, of course, hold true on the Candida diet. GMO foods are not a welcome addition to the Candida diet at all. They're just going to make things worse. All right. Well, I think we've covered a good bit today. Um, we have some questions that have come in. And first question, the person writes, what would be the maximum amount of sugar that someone could consume in a day on the Candida diet? Well, that's an interesting question because the we're differentiating here carbohydrates to sugar. And you'll see when you look at packaging ingredients that where they talk about the grams of sugar something has versus the amount of carbohydrate that it has. I would say that six grams of sugar a day is a maximum of, of any type of sugar 
in actual fact, the average American is probably eating closer to 36 to 40 grams of sugar a day. Uh, but for the purpose of the candida diet, six grams would be the most. And after that point, you'd be feeding the candida like crazy. Next reader, uh, listener, writes in that they find when they go off the candida diet, they have severe headaches. Well, what's happening here, this is very simple. What's happening here is the when the person's going off the candida diet, they're either introducing back a food which they're allergic to, which is causing the blood vessels in their, in their, in their head or their brain to either overly expand or overly contract. That's just, this is why you essentially get a headache from a food. The blood vessels either open up too wide or contract too small, and that's what causes the headache. So there could be a food, the person, I don't know this person, by the way, so it's not, it's not something that I could um, say based on their treatment that I have a quick answer to, because this person who wrote this is not a patient. But that would be the first consideration I would have. They're eating something they're allergic to. The other possibility is that this person's candida is so bad that when they go off the candida diet, it's causing a tremendous amount of inflammation. And inflammation is a word that's been kicked around and gets kicked around quite a lot. And um, it's very important from a modern sense of health that we understand inflammation. Because when we, if we go back in the last 50 years of nutritional research, and if we were to be able to scan it all and then come right up to present time, what we'd find out is that a great deal of the strides and improvements that we've made in your health is in the ability to reduce or stop inflammation in the body. You will hear all kinds of fancy words being thrown around by lecturers and in books. You'll hear words like cytokines, uh, all of these different things prostaglandins, all these chemical terms, it all amounts to the body's ability to produce inflammation or stop and reduce inflammation. And to a large degree, most of the beneficial herbs and the more uh, advanced vitamins and individual nutrients that have been found are all about reducing inflammation. Antioxidants are all about reducing inflammation because the end result of an oxidation event is that you get inflammation. You have free radicals that are formed which cause inflammation. So when you're looking at your diet, a diet which is very beneficial happens to be a diet which is low inflammatory. Now one of the easiest ways to make your diet less inflammatory is by consuming grass-fed animal products. Many people don't know this but when you start looking at the amount of essential fatty acids, the, the good fats as we call them, that are in grass-fed beef or other animals that are grass-fed, they rival the amount that you find in salmon and the fish that are so praised by the health food industry. And most people wouldn't know that. The bad fat that causes inflammation in your diet is called arachidonic acid. Arachidonic acid is what's high in meat. It's what's, what's high in other animal products, which causes inflammation. But you don't find a lot of arachidonic acid in grass-fed animal products. It's only in the, the traditional corn-fed product, which usually carries with it all the antibiotics and hormones and whatnot. But if you eat grass-fed products, and this holds true once again for the candida diet, you're making your diet far more anti-inflammatory than the average American diet would be. The average American diet is very inflammatory because the person is eating uh, grass, not grass-fed, but the traditional corn-fed meats, and they're using fast foods which are high in trans fats, which are highly inflammatory. And you also don't know, you know, when I'm saying you're not eating grass-fed, but you're eating traditional corn-fed, I don't even particularly know that that's the case. Eating a prime meat that's corn-fed, by most standards, is considered healthier than a lot of the meat that you could be eating that's out there that 
is uh, suspicious. It's not unusual for the, the meat industry to feed livestock things that would make you shudder if you knew exactly what they were being fed. Uh, it's, there, there are reports of these animals being fed gummy bears and all kinds of insane things that you would just never believe would be true. A good book to reference on this is the book written by um, Mr. David Kirby, Animal Factory, where he goes through exactly what the livestock and what our food sources are being fed in this country, and it will really open your eyes up to things. So when we talk about the he person here with these potential headaches from what they're eating, the first thing you want to also consider is that how inflammatory is the person's diet. When they go off their candida diet, do they then start eating all these foods which are highly inflammatory? And as I said again, the easiest way to make your diet into a, an anti-inflammatory diet compared to an inflammatory diet is get rid of all the, the meat that you're buying from the supermarket, eat grass-fed, get rid of all the trans fats, eat your healthy fats, and you will miraculously change the ratio of arachidonic acid in your diet to linolenic acid, which is the anti-inflammatory one. And that could just produce miracles in many symptoms that you have in chronic illnesses that are of inflammatory in nature, like arthritis and whatnot. And there are many books on this subject you'll find in the health food store that cover this in detail. Well, folks, that's our podcast for today. I hope you found this as enlightening as I did in doing it. And we will be with you again next Tuesday for the next podcast. And we will speak to you then. Anyone has a question in the interim, please feel free to email me your question. That's a wrap for this episode of the Candida Chronicles featuring Michael Biamonte, Certified Clinical Nutritionist. Michael holds a Doctorate of Nutropathy and is a New York State Certified Clinical Nutritionist. He is a professional member of the International and American Association of Clinical Nutritionists and of the American College of Nutrition, and he's a member of the Scientific Advisory Board for the Clinical Nutrition Certification Board. For more information on how Michael can help you, please visit healthtruth.com, that's health-truth.com, or phone his office at 212-587-2330.